This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as border controls reappear in Western Europe and Hungary declares a state of emergency near its border with Serbia, we'll ask if the European Union is capable of finding a common approach to the migrant crisis. But we begin in Britain, where the opposition Labour Party has elected its most left-wing leader in decades. Jeremy Corbyn, a backbench MP since 1983, won a landslide victory with almost 60% of the vote, winning by big margins among all three categories of voters, party members, trade union affiliates and registered supporters who paid just £3 to vote. He immediately shocked many Labour MPs and the entire British media by appointing as Shadow Chancellor or Minister for Finance his old friend John MacDonald, who is, if anything, more radical than himself. So will Jeremy Corbyn's leadership inevitably spell doom for the Labour Party? Or could he find a new majority among the young, the disaffected and those left behind by economic austerity? To discuss this, I'm joined from Edinburgh by Alex Massey, Scotland editor of The Spectator, and here in Dublin by Irish Times columnist Paul Gillespie. Alex Massey, you've described the election of Jeremy Corbyn as an act of political suicide. Why? Because that's exactly what it is. Um, uh, This is the most extraordinary election result uh, any of us can remember. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, comparisons are sometimes made between Jeremy Corbyn and Michael Foote, who led Labour to such a disastrous election result in 1983, the year Corbyn, as you say, was first elected to the House of Commons. But those comparisons are entirely unfair on Michael Foote, um, who was a statesman in comparison to Jeremy Corbyn. the idea that Corbyn can somehow uh, rally the Labour Party and win a new majority is for the birds, I'm afraid. Um, there is simply no way that a man who is so far out with the mainstream of British public opinion on a whole range of subjects can possibly create any kind of electoral majority. This is, um, this is the worst day in the history of the Labour Party, frankly. Um, it, is a, it is a form of collective suicide uh, and, and made worse by the fact that many of Corbyn's own supporters know they ca- that he can't win an election. Only 30% of them actually think that he could win an election. Um, the rest of them, they don't actually care. They prefer the purity of unsullied opposition to the grubby realities of compromising with the electorate, and let alone um, you know, the, the uh, harsh realities that sometimes have to be accepted as the price of governing. They're the, not interested in that. The, the counter-argument, Alex, is that uh, the Conservatives won uh, a majority of the seats in the House of Commons on a minority of the votes, and that in fact uh, you know, although Labour was outflanked on the right by the Conservative Party in parts of England, that, the, that in Scotland, for example, the SNP fought the election on a uh, platform which was to the left of Labour, that they also seeped votes to the Greens, and that there's also a kind of a populist vote uh, that went to the right to UKIP, which could also be reclaimed, and there's all these other people who never vote at all. Is this not uh, a possibility that there are these untapped reservoirs of votes that someone like Jeremy Corbyn could appeal to? 
Okay, let's accept for a moment uh, that that is a possibility. It's a possibility in the same way as a 12-horse accumulator is a possibility. It might pay off, um, but let's face it, the odds are not in your favor, are they? There's a reason the bookmakers promote those kinds of of bet. That's what essentially the most optimistic uh, argument for Corbyn is. But this notion, again, that you can somehow rally millions of people who don't normally vote to come out for Jeremy Corbyn is also a palpable nonsense. The single most important thing about non-voters is that they are non-voters. By definition, they are not the people you can rely on to win an election. Um, uh, the Scottish case is, is uh, you know, the idea that Labour could look to inspiration uh, to Scotland is, again, not applicable in my view. Um, the SNP vote was not a triumph of left-wing politics over a discredited um, and sell-out Labour Party that had drifted too far to the right. No, it was um, an election victory based on nationalism and national identity. It had nothing to do with um, the traditional politics of left or right, um, except perhaps for a very small minority of voters. Um, uh, and, and again, you know, there simply aren't enough Greens um, you know, in the UK uh, to, to propel Labour to anything like a respectable electoral showing. If Jeremy Corbyn makes it to 2020, which is by no means a certainty, you know, the Tories will, be, will have to have an appalling election result and run a dreadful election campaign to come away with anything less than a 100-seat majority in the House of Commons. Paul Gillespie, is, uh, is this as bad as Alex says for the Labour Party? I, I, no, I have a different perspective on it. Um, <clears throat> he may well be right uh, in the up-close uh, electoral uh, framework, which, of course, we have to think in. But I, there, there are deeper issues at stake in Britain. And I, I have to go to the, the question of why did he get elected in the first place? It's not all just newcomers to the party. There's a surge of feeling and sentiment about politics and the way politics is conducted, which lies behind his, um, his victory. He's also a rather canny and shrewd and rather cool guy, in my impression. Uh, um, and I think that can be that can be turned to advantage. Uh, as to the kind of coalition that you mentioned and Alex, you know, disbelieves in, well, let's wait and see. I don't accept that the Scottish mobilisation was simply a question of nationalism. I think it was a question of, uh, a, uh, of a, 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 an abiding and cross-UK and indeed possibly cross-European disenchantment with politics and a way of filling that vacuum uh, which re-enthuses people. I, I think, therefore, that along Alongside the rather conventional expectations about uh, the next election, which is you know four years away, away one has to await uh, a series of developments within British society. Now, one of the most interesting uh, uh, questions that he faces is, of course, the attitude to the EU referendum. And uh, on, on on several quite convincing arguments, uh, he's going to weaken uh, the uh, the majority, if you know, as it's been standing, uh, for staying in the EU because he because he's he's he's. Uh, he questions a lot of that. Uh, I think you, I think the other point I would make in, in general terms, that referendum is going to pose problems of unity for the Conservatives too. Uh, conceivably, in five years' time, we might see a Labour Party split, but also a Conservative Party split alongside other fragmentations and a reconstitution uh, constitutionally of that state. So is uh, the Jeremy Corbyn's election part of a broader trend, uh, a populist trend in 
in Europe and in the United States as we see with Bernie Sanders? I think one is allowed to speculate. I wouldn't use the word populist about it. I think it's 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 definitely on the left. Uh, it's it's populist as against the way politics has been conducted, but it it re-engages a participatory uh, element in politics that has been missing. Uh, it, it, it re-engages a lot of young people. It re-engages uh, uh, issue-type issue politics uh, that, are, um, uh, that have fallen out of favour. Uh, so I think it's part of a, of a, a general... It is part of a general change. Well, well, perhaps if we don't use the word populism, but Alex, if we were to use the, the phrase anti-systemic and you were to look at anti-systemic movements of the left and the right and indeed nationalist movements like the SNP, like Sinn Féin in Ireland uh, and then you have the left-wing movements like Podemos in Spain and Syriza in Greece, right-wing movements like, movements like the Front National and various others in other parts of Europe. Is What these have in common, it seems, is a, a rejection of the consensus, the so-called neoliberal economic consensus and also some scepticism about some uh, of the international order of things like the European Union. Could it not uh, this Jeremy Corbyn phenomenon not be part of that? Yes, it could be, and in some respects it is. I think that's reasonable. There is a, a sort of crisis of confidence uh, in European politics as a whole at the moment and a lack of faith in political leadership. But most of these movements to which you refer have something else in common too, and that is failure. Um, you know, Syriza, sure, has won an election in Greece and so on, and then discovered that actually, you know, it is in no position to actually, um, you know, govern in the way that it campaigned. Um, you know, reality bites. Reality is, is a cruel and, and harsh mistress. Um, you know, I think it's also easy to overstate uh, Jeremy Corbyn's popularity. You know, he won the vote, votes of 250,000 people, which in one sense is quite impressive. Um, uh, but, you know, it's also a tiny figure when set beside, um, you know, the, the size of the electorate as a whole. Uh, and even smaller when you think that, you know, um, you, you know a coffee from Starbucks uh, uh, would cost you more than the opportunity to, to vote for, for the Labour leader. So, you know, again, Again, it's, it's really quite a small movement. You know, we've always known that the far left is there and the far left mobilized itself in this Labour leadership election. But there's a massive difference between that and carrying the country. Um, you know, and Middle England um, is, is a relatively small, sea conservative place. Um, and I just cannot for the life of me see how a man of Jeremy Corbyn's beliefs his track record and his association can possibly hope to to, to to win a majority of the seats in the House of Commons. Well, he obviously hasn't got the support of a majority of his own parliamentary party. Yeah, and is that not going to create a problem, uh, not just for him, but also for Labour MPs? Because under the British system, constituency parties in all the uh, political parties are very powerful uh, in this first-past-the-post single-seat constituency system uh, because they, they can select and deselect uh, candidates, uh, are we going? To, are we looking at uh, at a split in the Labour Party, a new party being created to the right of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour? I, I mean, tribal loyalties in the Labour Party and the Labour movement run extremely deep, and there will be a deep reluctance, I think, to um, countenance the idea of a break of a formal breakaway. Um, uh, but what I think you, you, we will see is, if you like, um, a Labour leadership in internal exile. Um, you know, there was a good joke the other day that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has created a backbench of all the talents. Now, talent in the modern Labour Party is a relative term, but nonetheless, there's enough truth in that, uh, in that witticism for it to hurt. I think that, um, 
you know, you're right that the threat of diesel action will concentrate minds and command a degree of, uh, of um, quasi-loyalty or at least formal loyalty, even as Labour MPs begin to, to look for alternatives for a post-Corbyn future. Um, you know, I think they accept that they will have to give him, you know, a year, 18 months, perhaps even a couple of years uh, to demonstrate that he's not the answer and that he is going to lead Labour to annihilation um, before they can really start calling for a change in, 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 in tack. You know, let the left exhaust itself um, before moving. But, um, you know, that's, that's a high-stakes game and a high-stakes gamble too. I mean, you know, it's, Labour are now in an, in an awful position. I, I, um, you know, I can't see, as I say, for some of these reasons, that there will be a formal split, um, partly because the costs of setting up a new party are extremely high, um, you know, but that's before you even get into the business of mobilizing and, and creating the institutional apparatus for a new party, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and people will look to the SDP, um, which, of course, you know, formed by Labour moderates in 1981. And, you know, well, it petered out after a couple of decades and it wasn't the answer in the end. So I think that example is also cautionary. Um, but at the same time, it's very difficult to see any way out to, of this mess for Labour. Uh, Paul Gillespie, is there, if we, if we for, uh, for the moment, forget about the business of winning elections, uh, or at least winning a general election in four years' time, uh, is there a possibility that, uh, from the left-wing point of view, that Corbyn's victory can effectively move the discourse, the political discourse in Britain, to the left and expand it leftwards? I'm sure it can, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a, that, a good lot depends on his skill um, in, in, in taking the very pronounced positions he's taken on, on NATO, on, on, um, on, on the state's role, uh, on investment and so on, and turning it into uh, and towards a, a different kind of narrative. A lot of the panic around his uh, election is precisely to do with the breaking of that consensus, if you like, that paradigm that's been set in place since the Blair years. Uh, and he, that's broken. And it's broken within the Labour Party pretty decisively. That's the meaning of the threefold victory that you referred to. And if you think about the his opponents, they were such dull, uh, uh, middle-of-the-road, boring people uh, that it's not surprising that uh, in that setting uh, the animation of, of his ideas has come through uh, and uh, obviously his personality has appealed as well. But I think that's, of course, it's a, it, of course it raises that question, how far that can be translated into a wider um, uh, movement in the society remains to be seen. And does it make uh, a British uh, exit from the European Union more likely? <sighs> so, uh, arguably, yes. But I think it also opens up a series of, of questions uh, and debates in that area that it, it, could, it could go either way. Uh, one has seen certain tacking uh, by uh, um, uh, the Conservatives in their negotiations with Brussels on labour market issues, for example, which takes account of their need for labour support if they're going to win the referendum. So this is, goes across the party system as well. Alex Massey, does it make uh, British no more likely? Uh, I think that's something that it's actually genuinely difficult to say one way or the other at present. I mean, I think that if Corbyn is seen to be sceptical about remaining within the EU, then I think that that, um, that will damage the outcause, actually, in the same way as the outcause is, is damaged by its association with Nigel Farage, another uh, figure who speaks very powerfully to a, a minority of, of British voters, but doesn't command the respect or confidence of mainstream British opinion. Uh, and Jeremy 
Corbyn's in a similar class, I think, uh, in that fashion. So uh, I, I think that would actually complicate things for, for out. Um, you know, more generally, in terms of shifting the balance of um, you know, the Britain's political center of gravity um, to the left, well, up to a point, I think that there is an enormous opportunity for David Cameron to move the Conservative Party slightly to the left to occupy the reasonable center in opposition uh, and in contrast to Jeremy Corbyn's uh, extremism or what will be painted as an extremist Labour Party. That Cameron can then really actually be the the heir to Macmillan that he he actually um, instinctively, intuitively it wants to be. You know that's where David Cameron is most comfortable. He's not a radical right winger or an ideologue by by nature or inclination. He would like to his legacy to be of uh, that of restoring the idea of one nation Toryism. And Corbyn's election gives him political space and cover to do that. Whether he has the ability and the agility to do it remains to be seen. But there is at least that opportunity. Paul, you're sceptical about that. I am because, I mean, the, the big project of, of the Conservative Party is to downsize the state uh, 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 and to roll back a, a lot of the uh, uh, public expenditures, welfare expenditures, etc., etc. That, that was characteristic of uh, even of the Macmillan consensus with, with Labour. It, it's a quite a pronounced agenda and, and Osborne, you know, buys fully into that. Whether you can uh, whether you can occupy the space uh, you know that, that that is opened up arguably by um, by the new labor leadership uh, and not reverse some of your downsizing of the state is a is, is a big question I, I haven't seen uh, evidence of a breakthrough in 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 in, in, in the pro- kind of productivity and growth uh, that would compensate for the state expenditure to that extent uh, finally Alex uh, to Scotland and uh, this time last year we were all getting ready for uh, the referendum on independence which was uh, narrowly defeated but now it's back on the agenda again and the SNP are going to roll out a timeline for a new referendum. Yes, they are. Um, you know, all throughout the referendum campaign um, last year and before that, uh, the SNP leadership were telling us this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, um, sometimes a once-in-a-generation opportunity to determine the country's future. Now, anybody who was paying attention knew that that wasn't the case. Anybody who was paying attention knew and understood that on September the 19th, the day after the, a no vote was confirmed, that's when the countdown and the campaign for the next referendum would begin. Uh, you know, the Scottish Nationalists exist to advocate independence. The idea that they would give this up in the event, in the aftermath of a, of a defeat that, while close, was also decisive, um, you know, is all, you know, was always extremely improbable. Um, then, of course, you know, the nationalists win their landslide and the Scottish sanction of the general election. They look set fair to try and again at next year's Scottish parliamentary elections. Um, and so Nicola Sturgeon finds herself under a degree of pressure from within her own party to lay out the terms and conditions at which she might countenance a second go at independence. Now, you know, uh, Nicola Sturgeon is a very canny and careful politician. She's cautious. She's not a gambler the way Alex Salmond, her predecessor, was. And she is quite, quite sure that uh, there will be a second referendum, but it will only come at a time of her choosing and only come at a time when there is a prolonged period in which the opinion polls are demonstrating that... Uh, that uh, a yes vote would be delivered on this second referendum. Now, that might not be for another five years. It might not even be for another 10 years, but it will come. And one of the things that Jeremy Corbyn's election does, actually, is it seems to me to make Scottish independence vastly more likely um, because we see the prospect Labour being um, annihilated in England and, uh, you know, defeated so thoroughly in England in 2020 that it 
could take two elections for them to recover. And that would then mean a Conservative government in office from 2010 to 2030, a Conservative government that uh, probably would continue to uh, lack major support or significant support in Scotland. I think that then makes the nationalist narrative that Scotland and England are fundamentally different places, following different political traditions and different political uh, journeys. But, uh, you know, it no longer makes sense for them to remain part of the same state. I think that strengthens that narrative and uh, that we would see many more Scots faced with the choice between independence and continued Tory governments in London decide that, well, maybe independence, you know, isn't such a reckless gamble after all. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think Jeremy Corbyn's election is also a gift to the SNP. Paul? And, you know, the campaign will continue until such time as the SNP think that the, you know, the time is right for another referendum. Paul? Uh, I, I think that's fascinating. Uh, and I, I, uh, in many respects, convincing if an... Uh, one's point of departure is from the formal parliamentary uh, majorities, which, of course, in conventional politics, we have to talk about. But there's a deeper, also a deeper current going on in the UK state. Uh, it's, it's to do with its structure, its, its, its preoccupation with, with parliamentary sovereignty, its centralism, its failure to develop a discourse uh, alternative to the SNP's one, which would be some kind of federalisation of the state for all the difficulties that's involved in that. Now, it seems to me uh, that uh, uh, Corbyn has a big opportunity if he wants to take up that kind of agenda and he would need to in the Scottish setting uh, to think about the uh, deep reforms of the British state uh, over the five to ten year period uh, I think he, he, could, he could find himself uh, in a better position on some of these issues uh, if he were to do that. And these issues we'll return to no doubt uh, soon again. Alex Massey in Edinburgh and Paul Gillespie here in Dublin, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. European Union interior ministers this week failed to agree on a mandatory system of quotas to deal with hundreds of thousands of people who've been arriving in Europe, mainly from countries in the Middle East, including Syria. Meanwhile, Germany this week introduced temporary border controls along its frontier with Austria. Austria deployed hundreds of troops to its border with Hungary, and Hungary introduced new laws to stop migrants entering the country illegally and declared a state of emergency in two southern counties. So are the EU's efforts to find a common response to the migrant crisis falling apart? Well, I'm joined from Brussels by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, and Paul Gillespie is still here with me in studio. Suzanne, is the EU response to the migrant crisis unravelling? Well, Dennis, um, I think there was a huge uh, surprise, really, that Monday night's meeting of Justice and Home Affairs ministers did not make more progress. And there had been expectations over the weekend that perhaps um, EU member states would sign up to the uh, Juncker programme to relocate 120,000 migrants, um, but maybe on a voluntary rather than a mandatory basis. But it didn't even get that far. No agreement was reached. Um, There were deep divisions between member states on Monday night, and now it looks like there's going to be some kind of an EU summit maybe in the next couple of weeks uh, rather than wait until the 8th of October when the next meeting of justice ministers is scheduled for. 
And what went wrong, Suzanne? Because I mean, a, a week ago, everybody was terribly moved by this picture of the uh, little toddler uh, dead on the uh, on the beach in mm-hmm. um, uh, in Turkey, and uh, and it seemed that everybody was galvanised into taking serious action. And mm-hmm. now that that spirit appears to have evaporated. Um, well, I think a couple of things happened. Um, most notably, I think the parallel development, if you like, which was the fact that Germany reintroduced border controls on Sunday. I think that galvanised uh, the views of the Eastern European countries um, to continue their opposition to mandatory quotas. In other words, um, they were able to come into this meeting and say, look, if Germany's not able to cope, if border controls are being reintroduced, how can you expect that this is the best way to deal with this crisis? So I think the timing of that was unfortunate, uh, if you like. But ultimately, there are, are a strong number of countries in the European Union who are simply opposed to the idea of mandatorily imposing quotas on countries. They believe that the issue of immigration should be a national issue and um, they're opposed in principle, if you like, to this idea that one can redistribute uh, immigrants across the European Union based on a distribution key. They feel that that is not the role of the European Union. And this uh, German decision to uh, introduce temporary border controls, this is permitted under the Schengen Agreement, uh, if I'm not mistaken, but mm. it does seem to have a kind of a very uh, strong symbolic uh, importance insofar as it looks like uh, some kind of uh, fall, breaking apart of the open border system. Yes, um, the European Commission has been a pain to stress over the last few weeks that Schengen is still in existence, that within Schengen regulation, countries are permitted to introduce border controls in emergency situations. And indeed, there has been a number of instances of this over the years. And things like, for example, when Germany held the G7 summit, it had to introduce border passes, etc. But this is the first time it's ever been invoked for to deal with migration. So I think that's one of the reasons why this is becoming um, such a, a vis- visual, if you like, uh, threat to the idea of European unity and solidarity. It's by far the biggest instance of border controls um, in Schengen, and also the fact now that other countries have kind of a domino effect is showing that the system, in, in fact, is, is breaking down. Now, I mean, the move by Germany um, has been very interesting over the last few weeks. Obviously, Germany very strongly came out and said it was going to welcome um, around 800,000 refugees, um, but it looks like it is just simply unable to deal with the logistics of that. Over the weekend, we saw a comment from the Vice Chancellor uh, saying that there were limits to what Germany can do. There was a lot of opposition from some of the regional governments, particularly in, in Bavaria, saying they simply could not cope. So it seems to be that Germany uh, has promised uh, and still has the political will to accept this number, but basically does not have uh, the uh, logistic capacity uh, to process the amount of asylum seekers that are coming through its borders. Paul uh, Gillespie, is this, do you think, primarily an issue of uh, logistics? Because quite clearly, as Suzanne is saying, there is an issue of logistical capacity. Or is it more fundamentally uh, a problem of solidarity, just as we've seen with the euro crisis, the limits of European solidarity within the European Union? <clears throat> I think it's probably too early to say uh, definitively. Uh, I, you know, there has been a build-up, obviously driven by the, the visibility of the German commitment, the uh, public sentiment that you referred to uh, overwhelmingly last week, uh, which is a popular sentiment. Um, uh, it's not surprising that the uh, f- the you know, colossal flow of people has created uh, uh, 
logistical problems, uh, problems of handling this. Remember the rapidity of this, the, the, the pace is astonishing. Uh, I, I think it's too early myself to say where it's going to settle down. Uh, I do agree with Suzanne that the border control uh, decision is very significant and it could indeed, um, you know, it, it could accumulate uh, in that direction. But there's such so many issues at stake in in the in the mobility uh, question that I, I, I would I would give it time. I, I, I think I think it will take the next couple of months to see you know to make that that judgment. But, but isn't there? I mean, we have seen if you look at the eurozone crisis and the Greek crisis, it certainly looked like a failure of both solidarity, but also a failure of the decision making mechanism within the European Union. Yeah. And it, it appears that uh, certainly the events of the last uh, few days in Brussels, it looks like we're seeing this, something similar happening again, that the system is not working. Yeah, the system is, is incapable of handling the uh, uh, either the, the disenchantment at, the, at a base or, or, the, or, the, or the amount of activity or, or, or developing the capacity to do uh, the ambitious things that it, it wants to do. I agree that, that that's there. Now, is there the will then to deepen that system in such a way that it has greater capacity, uh, whether on the uh, euro issues or on the migration issues. I, again, I think it's too early to say, but I think we're coming to a point where the, the uh, linkages are seen between these kinds of solidarity. And I think the, the, the determination in, 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 in Central Eastern Europe, uh, if, if that starts linking up in a way that it could do, I, I, it, it's not a very good signal for, for, for future solidarity. Suzanne, what's the view in Brussels? Do, uh, is there this, uh, any sense that there is an appetite for the kind of deeper integration that Paul is talking about that could make decision-making more effective in all of these big issues? Yes, well, um, the key issue is that the European Commission, to give it its due, has been trying to come forward with new proposals to try and develop a kind of a truly integrated EU asylum policy. And a cornerstone of this was this idea of a mandatory relocation. But essentially what's been happening is that member states, the 28 member states of the European Union collectively, do not want to back that. A majority have come round, but a significant small minority don't. Now, technically, um, the European Union has the numbers to push through this legislation. It's got the qualified majorities that are needed because most of the big countries back the idea. But it's, it's reluctant to do that, to push through a, a a law that a clutch of smaller countries are against because obviously, I mean, who knows where this could lead. There's a complete standoff now where Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia are criticising the European Union for imposing this, these ideas of, of migration control. And um, If they were to push through this law, um, regardless, uh, we would definitely see a rise uh, of an anti-EU sentiment in these countries and huge uh, public disquiet towards the European Union if that was to happen. So, in a sense, the, the Commission's hands are tied. They're proposing a more integrated system, but all countries don't want to buy into this. And I think we do have to remember that, you know, this idea of free movement of Schengen predated the expansion of the European Union eastwards. So when these countries joined, you know, 10 years ago, um, they had to sign up to this concept of free movement and, and in a way surrender their a certain amount of control over immigration or, or borders. Um, and now this is coming home to roost. It seems like a lot of these countries are not prepared to do that. And yet, a bit like the Eurozone crisis, in order for the system to work, there has to be a more common integrated approach, but member states still want to retain national sovereignty. 
Uh, Paul Gillespie, finally, uh, much uh, of this migration is coming from Syria, and uh, there still is no sign of a really uh, serious diplomatic and political engagement in terms of uh, negotiating a peace settlement in Syria. And the Europeans seem to be pretty uh, just as absent as anybody else is on all of this. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, the Germans, to be fair, are, 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 are see this, or certainly uh, framing this issue into their overview of, of the crisis. Um, uh, their foreign minister wrote a piece the other day saying, you know, advocating a political diplomatic approach on a, in a much more active basis. And he was very concerned at recent Russian moves, but also at uh, French uh, and, and British moves to go more for the military than for the diplomatic uh, state of play. I met a Jordanian, senior Jordanian um, uh, diplomat official uh, the other day, and she was telling me just about the scale, and it's worth reminding ourselves, of, of the issue there. It's over a million people, a million and a half perhaps, uh, are being, are being uh, looked after in Lebanon. The whole ethnic balance of and their two country. Two million in Turkey. Yeah, two million in Turkey, etc. And she, so I asked her, what did she see? She's as a, as a kind of a solution. And she said, we must reach a position where at one stage Assad is there, uh, uh, and that would be an agreement for transition, and reaching a stage where he's not there. And it's the some way that the uh, Iranians can be engineered in that direction, the Americans can be engineered in that direction, is, is what seems to be, and this was a kind of regional meeting that I was at, uh, increasingly a regional sentiment. And that is rational. Uh, but can it be made real is another very big question. Paul Gillespie and Suzanne Lynch, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.